Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. This episode is produced in cooperation with Independent Art Fair New York City. It will be part of the Fair's 2023 OVR. I'm Daniela, and this podcast is about my personal and also about a lot of other people's enthusiasm for art. Art can touch on all parts of life, and therefore we talk about all parts of life. I hope to get you on board and to tell you interesting stories you enjoy listening to. We're recording via the internet, so please excuse any glitches and sound quality. Episode 79, recorded April 5, 2023. My guests for this special independent art fair episode are Susan Inglet, founder of the eponymous gallery since 1994 in New York City. The gallery provides representation for a range of artists emerging to established, working across media, and develops a program of surprising juxtapositions. And David Platzker, an expert in artist books and related ephemera, He is president of Specific Objects, a gallery, bookstore, and think tank dedicated to art post-1959, archiving and selling a range of items from art to counterculture. And from 2013 to 2018, David was, amongst many other things before and after that, curator of drawings at Prince at the Museum of Modern Art. And they will have a joint presentation at this year's Independent Art Fair. Hi, Susan. Hi, David. Very happy to have you. Good morning. Good, good morning, morning for you. Good afternoon from here. I'm always very interested in the personal background of my guests and their upbringing and their path into the arts. And Susan, would you mind first telling me a bit about you? What led to your fascination with art and to opening a gallery? I read a book about it. Uh, I, wow. I grew, up in, <laughs> I grew up in the South. The only person I knew in the arts was an aunt who taught uh, oil painting to teenagers. And so she taught me. And I fell in love with it. But I went to college. Um, I didn't see a career path in teaching teenagers how to oil paint. But when I graduated, I was on a two-year deferred admission before I entered an MBA program. And I read a book about art dealers. And I thought, that's it. Wow. And when I moved to New York, you know, I was supposed to be getting a job on Wall Street. I applied clandestinely to jobs in art galleries. And I managed to get one. And after a year of kind of bouncing around a little bit between part-time jobs and selling evening wear at Lord and Taylor's, I uh, got a job at Mary Boone Gallery in the 80s. And that was it. Oh, so you learned really in a gallery. Okay, that explains it because just reading a book, that sounds like, wow, what a bold move, just reading a book. That's the beauty of being 21. It <laughs> makes sense then. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't know. It would be terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that were different times. But 1994, it was shortly after 1989, the art market broke down. So it was a bold move. Well, that's when I started. Yes, that's when I started my own business. But mm -hmm. nothing to lose. And uh, I started a publishing company. And Jerry Saltz came into my office one day and said, what's wrong with you? Are you chicken? Are you afraid to open a gallery? And he was exactly right. Whoa. He threw down the gauntlet and I opened a gallery. I think I, at that point, knew too much. It's a lot of work, but it's uh, very gratifying. Yeah, I must say, yeah, I think a lot of people don't really know what it means to run a gallery, actually. But Jerry Saltz, he gave you that impulse that you said, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to jump into the cold water. Well, he, 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 he called it. He said, are you afraid to open a gallery? And I was. I knew how much work it would be and what the commitment was. But that was enough for me. It was a dare. So, so and you committed. 
I committed and that's the rest. Yeah, that's the rest is history in a way. <laughs> I just wanted to ask David because David has this very manifold career, but it always revolves about books and printing and ephemera. Can you say a little bit about that? Certainly. I think I had sort of a similar background with like Susan in that um, I graduated from college and I wasn't clear what I was going to do. Yeah. And so I found myself in an internship at um, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, thinking that I was either going to go to a an MA, PhD program or an MFA program. And through amazing circumstances, I ended up doing neither and got sucked deeper and deeper into the art world, primarily through the relationships I was making with, with artists, John Baldessari, Klaus Oldenburg, Kosha van Bruggen, and then those two, uh, three, introduced me to, to many other people and set me on the path that I'm on now. When I was thinking about the two of you whom I've never met, but I knew I would talk to you, I was thinking actually about human relationships and all these relations and how they are important to, to what we are all doing. And I was wondering if you think those people and personal relations and also the relations to the artist, is it very important to go into a deeper understanding of an artist's oeuvre, to know these people personally? Is that a difference to just be like studying them? For me personally, absolutely. I can't imagine doing what I was doing or what I am doing without having relationships with the artists that I'm working on. You know, it, it seems impossible to me that people work in museums And they spend scant time actually developing relationships either with artists or even, frankly, going out and seeing art in, in reality. To me, the whole pleasure of being engaged in the arts is being a participant in the environment. That means spending time with artists, spending time thinking about with the material literally in my hands. Is that also because it's art past 1959 on your website because there's still a chance to meet the people? Well, it, it's two things. It, one is certainly that um, the vast majority of the artists who came of age in post-1959 were still around when I began in this career. But 1959 marks the beginning, I think, of the contemporary art world, which is to say that in 1959, and a little bit earlier, people like Dick Higgins and many other sort of fluxus artists were taking classes at the New School for Social Research, and one of the classes they were taking was John Cage's experimental writing class. And that's really the inception of the beginning of the pop movement of happenings of fluxus and all the material that follows. And it's, it's interesting to think that people like um, Walter D. Maria's or, or minimalist, or so-called minimalist, was engaged in that, that area as well. It's Robert Morris, too. So if you follow a path and you think about art post-1958, you're thinking about pop minimal conceptual fluxus, and then the seeds that they planted for the artists that followed. And to me, that's very fertile and time to engage with. I just saw briefly an interview with you where you also said it made a huge difference to being an artist in the 60s than to being an artist now. If I think, for example, of New York City and I think of the 60s and I think Like, wow, that was like the center of the art world. And now everything changed. So what does that time still say to us? Or how do we yeah, take the energy and values of that time into our contemporary doings now? I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that. No, there um, is not, I'm sure. 
this has been said many times, but the art world of the 1960s was a much smaller container. There were fewer artists, fewer galleries. There were actually more physical publications spreading the news to a wider audience than there is now. That alone, I think, is, is sort of a defining feature, that the way we acquire information today is radically different than the way that we acquired information in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, yeah. and early 90s. Not only did people spend time sitting in galleries, having long, sustained conversations, there were artist bars and artist restaurants that were adjunct and extended that ability for people to have those meaningful engagements. And that's completely disappeared now. And if you can't do something in 250 characters in a tweet or 2,200 in an Instagram, you know, I think that's the way that people sustain dialogue right now. And that's truly unfortunate. Our generation, in a way, we grew up in the analog world, but we're still young enough to really have this conversation in the digital world. Especially us, we can provide something which brings back is strength of personal communication. Like, for example, going as a real person to a real place and speaking to real people. Do you think this is something we could give an example to a younger generation and add that to their style of communication? Susan and I have a 22-year-old daughter, and I think that our experience is you can't tell someone what to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, not tell. It's example. You never can tell anybody. Nobody, nobody could tell us what to do. No, no. But I sometimes have the feeling that actually there is an openness and a willingness and there is a need for, like, for real relations. I think there's beginning to be a pivot towards that. You see a pushback among a younger generation, even in their teens, against that constant input of Instagram and social media exactly, and some of them just walking away from it. And I've noticed it even, and as David said, our own daughter is that now they're beginning to recognize the value of personal relationships in that contact. And that's so much about what art is, is about being present in the moment and seeing art in person, mm -hmm. uh, which brings us to things like art galleries and art fairs and those opportunities to make those connections. I mean, there are all these online viewing rooms, and when it comes to commerce, it might even work. I'm, I'm not even sure about that. But when it comes to creating contacts and creating meaningful relation, then I think we're still human. And as long as we're in our bodies, we really want to see and touch and feel each other and exchange. And so I think probably we're at this point where we can turn it around a little bit. I don't have like a chronological catalog of questions at all here. So I'm going to just jump into your very, very special presentation you do jointly at The Independent. And I'm quoting here, you will be having a joint presentation showing works addressing and reclaiming sexuality by Yayo Kusama, Linda Bangles, and Beverly Simmers. And I wonder what does reclaiming sexuality in that context mean? I was thinking about the arts and sexuality and the nude body, and I had the feeling there's a lot of hypersensitivity in the past few years, which leads to censorship even, or which leads to a new prudishness. Is that something you also would address? And also, what do you think the independent is the right place to give visibility to this works? I mean, I will say, yes, I think independence is the perfect place to get to begin this conversation. I think Elizabeth Dee and Matthew Higgs have done an incredible job in creating 
a space for these kinds of conversations. They're iconoclast, and I think that's the sort of presentation they're looking for. But this is certainly David's wheelhouse. I love the idea that we brought in three generations of feminists mm-hmm. to talk about pornography and to reclaim pornography. And he begins with Yoyo Kusama and Linda Binglis, and we finish off with uh, gallery artist Beverly Sims. But I'll let David talk about this. He's done a lot of exploration into pornography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yes, David. <laughs> <laughs> Since he was 15. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sorry. I need to correct Susan. 13. I was given a Playboy subscription for my 13. Sorry, that's right. By my best friend. Yes, but Playboy is not pornography, isn't it? Well, that's, I mean, that's all in the eye of the beholder, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> that might for be for a 13 year old, yes. yes, at that time, definitely. But this is interesting that it's like three feminists that want to reclaim pornography, sexuality in a feminist way. Let me give you a little precursor. In 2009, I did an exhibition with Dan Graham about Mm -hmm. all the projects that Dan had done for publications. Beginning in 1966, Dan decided that it was important to make art that was for the printed page. And more important than that, um, in his mind, was that to garner a new audience, the obstacle to getting people to see the work was to get them into the gallery. Mm-hmm. Perhaps a better platform to be utilizing for his work, which he was sort of titling poetry, was to place projects within trade magazines, either poetry magazines, uh, women's fashion magazines like Harper's, Bazaar, rock and roll magazines. There was a magazine out of Boston called Fusion, which was an alternative to the Rolling Stone magazine. Many of these things were legitimately outside of the art world. It didn't have the same crossover. And to do this show, Dan said I had to go out and find all the original magazines for which he had done projects for publication. And finding the things that were poetry and fashion and even the early art world and architectural periodicals and publications were relatively easy to find. But Dan had done a piece called Dutton Essence, which he said he had placed as a personal ad in Screw and other porn magazines. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Dan being Dan, he didn't document what porn magazine issues that he had put it in. So I spent a lot of time trying to reach out to people who deal in or collect tabloid pornography from the 1960s. And while they would say, you know, I can tell you about the women of these publications, you know, who appeared or who wrote articles or who were editors, they weren't going to waste any time going through the personal ads to help me find Dan Graham's personal ads that he was claiming as an artwork. But they would sell me porn by the pound. <laughs> and I literally ended up buying a pallet of porn. It was delivered on a, on a pallet to my office. It was this giant cube-like stack of tabloid pornography. And I spent days with a couple of assistants plowing through the pornography, trying to find Dan's ad. And ultimately, I was successful. I found these five ads that Dan Dan had placed, one in Screw Magazine, four in York Review of Sex and Politics, which was sort of the highbrow version of Screw. We presented the show. Dan was super excited. A variation of that show is at 303 Gallery currently. And I moved on. I, I thought that, you know, okay, I've done what I've done, but now I've got a pallet of porn sitting in my office and I 
tried to come up with some solutions about what to do with it. And to figure out what to do with it, I had to spend some time looking at it, hmm. which is real, you know, it's a hardship, of course. Oh, yes, it's, it's really <laughs> hardcore in the truest sense. And, you know, tabloid pornography of the 1960s was extremely tame. If you think of Playboys being non-pornography, mm -hmm. certainly by anyone's standards today, looking at pornography, screw, um, miracle view, sex and politics, was pretty tame. I mean, Peter Fujar was a staff photographer for miracle view, sex and politics. John Chamberlain was a staff photographer for the same periodical. Andy Warhol was placing ads for his movies in these magazines. Al Hansen, the Fluxus artist, had a parallel periodical called Kiss, which he edited under either his name or a pseudonym in various issues. And I quickly realized that there was a huge amount of art content that was being coalesced within these periodicals. And there were a couple of reasons for that. But you mentioned only male artists until now. There were female artists as well. Mm -hmm. As I was about to say, the first issue of Screw Magazine, November of 1968, The centerfold was Yoya Kusama presenting a nude happening in Central Park. It wasn't a naked woman, you know, spread across a bed. It was Kusama with a paintbrush painting polka dots on her uh, male and female friends as they were arrayed on this, this statue of Alice in Wonderland in Central mm -hmm. Park. And that really got me thinking uh, that why was this material ending up in these periodicals? And as I was about to say, there were really two reasons. One was that These porn magazines needed artistic content to be able to say that they were something other than just purveyors of porn. So they had an own interest to do that. They had an interest because at that time there were laws in, in New York State mm -hmm. that stipulated that pornography was illegal. And the United States Postal Service could arrest you and postal police could come in and arrest you if you were sending this material through the mail. So they had a legitimate need, um, business need, to be able to say that they were doing something other than just being purveyors of porn. So they were inviting artists to submit material, or they were soliciting um, pornography, non-pornographic material, artistic content from their friends, so that they could say that they were doing something other than simply um, publishing straight-up porn. That is a fascinating law that kind of leads to new production of art and to new freedom for both sides. Yeah. You know, that law got quickly overturned. There was um, Al Goldstein, who was the co-publisher of Screw Magazine, gets arrested. Whether or not he intentionally intended to get arrested is, is another story. But he was arrested. He was put on trial. And Screw was declared in New York State as being um, a legitimate periodical that was simply other than just pornography. In fact, the whole definition of pornography gets rewritten primarily through this trial that Al Goldstein was put on. So in the early 1970s, 71, 72, you see this art dissipate. But as I was going to say, there was the second reason for why there was so much artistic content in these periodicals was that if you asked these artists that were appearing in these periodicals, they were saying, well, it's part of our culture. Mm. This was a conversation I had with Klaus Oldberg. You know, why were you making artwork that was to be published in these magazines? He wasn't repurposing things. He was actually making material for these periodicals. He said, well, it's part of my culture. These, these people were my friends. They were asking me to contribute. And, you know, mm. I didn't see it as something that was outside of the realm of my, my world. It was definitely something that I was engaged with. Yeah, that was like pop culture being inclusive for a lot of things. 
Sure. You think about the summer of love and you think about counterculture movement, the anti-Vietnam movements. These were all some of the things that were being cataloged within these periodicals. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to say is that these periodicals were pansexual, which is to say that they were from screw number one. They were vested both not in heterosexual pornography, but gay pornography. LBTQ was not even a phrase back then, but they were part of the conversation. People like Gregory Badcock, who wrote the or compiled the first real book about minimalism, was a gay a writer um, who was reviewing gay films and gay books, being published alongside stories about um, how to sustain their erection. So <laughs> it was a very different world. And, you know, if you have a conversation about the engagement people have today with art periodicals, it's, it's sort of sad that they can't think more broadly about the engagement that was happening. 40, almost 50 years ago now. But was it kind of like the other way around, the, the culture and the counterculture that they were much more open to many, many things, but the general society probably was not? And now the general society opened up to many, many things, but in culture there's more willingness to, yeah, to censor things? That's probably true, yeah. That's sad. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, This period of time, the, the late 1960s, was uh, sort of a fervent platform for, for breaking of traditions and breaking of taboos and sort of um, pushing it back against prior generations. And there were so many opportunities for people to engage more readily than in static physical materials, which is to say publications. The title of our booth, Are You Incorruptible or Hopelessly Corrupt? is drawn from a, a half-page ad that Yo-Yo Kusama placed in an issue of Village Voice in April of 1969 when she opened up a shop where she was selling orgy fashions and you could rent a camera and she would supply nude models and uh, you could come in and take photographs of the nude models as they were arrayed on top of the Kusama-painted environment. You know, I think that there were all these possibilities for artists to engage with the public in very new ways. I know that in the 1960s, as I was saying earlier, artists were trying to think about new platforms. And the new platform, as Dan Graham was pointing out, was periodicals. You know, periodicals last physically longer than an exhibition within an art gallery or a museum. And as you point out, they have a much wider reach than the art publications did then and do now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But do you think now that would be also a valid way of distribution because nobody reads anymore? <laughs> well, I think that things are, are much more transitory now. The obvious beauty of, of a physical periodical is, you know, I was able to go out and after much effort find all these porn mm -hmm. magazines. They still physically exist. They're in great condition. I think it would be an enormous challenge to go back um, a couple of days, if not a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months, if not a couple of years, and find something you remember seeing on Instagram. Yeah, a lot of those things will be lost. All, all the server just breaks down, you know, and all this information is <laughs> lost. So, so there probably yeah. will be a big black hole. I think it is a sign of the times in a way that you do this booth right now, you know. So it is, on one hand, it is mm -hmm. historical. It has historical material, but it also speaks... To us now, it has to say something to us now. We've come almost a full circle. In the late 1960s, there was so much effort on the behalf of conservative government and conservative politicians to shut down youth culture. 
to push back against counterculture, to push back against civil rights. And we're coming exactly back to that moment again. People who came of age in the early 1960s or mid-1960s, many of those people are now elderly politicians, Republicans, and they're seeing their opportunity to get back to a place that they believe existed in some mythology in their heads, God-fearing country which, in fact, we, we never truly were, and certainly were never set up to be. And that's sort of the beauty of this booth that Susan and I are presenting, is that we're trying to think about the ways that artists were engaged with not just simply pornography, but using all the tools of their trade to think about how they wanted to present themselves to the world. In those publications, there's this sense of freedom and anarchy in porn. And using the nude body, feminist artists that were using their own bodies in the 1960s. And it was, it was not about the male gaze or anything. It was about their feminist freedom. And now I have the feeling porn is more about delivering a very restricted image of the body. Or it's very much about control. <laughs> I return a little bit what you just said. It, it was certainly about the male gaze in respect to Kusama and Bankless, and certainly with, mm-hmm. with Beverly as well. It's about capturing the things that were instrumental about the male gaze and using that as leverage to make art that was, um, you know, turning the male gaze back upon itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's incredibly true of, of Linda Bankless and the Linda Bankless 1974 so called dildo ad that she placed in Art Form magazine was really a retort to Robert Morris who she had a relationship with, now was out of a relationship with. Morris, um, in April of 1974, had uh, issued a poster in conjunction with a show that he had done for Castelli and Sondheim galleries simultaneously, where Morris appears uh, naked from the hips up, surrounded by heavy chains and wrist restraints in a Nazi helmet, very much presenting himself as a giant phallus. And the photograph was taken by Rosalind Krauss, who was then an associate editor at Art Forum. And Bangless definitely took that as inspiration for her dildo ad, you know, showing up Robert Morris, appearing in Art Forum, placing his ad in Art Forum, the territory of Rosalind Krauss. So there was a lot of things going on here, but also saying that, you know, Robert Morris, you look like a giant dick and <laughs> I've got a bigger dick than you are. That's a cool, bold move. And at that time, even, I mean, if we look at it with our eyes now, it seems like, yeah, you can do that. But at that time, it was definitely really strong. Yeah. I think it still had the shock value. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can talk about the sexism involved in the conversations around it. Um, Absolutely. Robert Morris had got one single sentence in the New York Times in the context of a much larger review of the exhibition. And that single sentence praised practically the, the Morris poster, whereas the Bankless ad, Bankless artwork, not only led to many of the associate editors defecting from the magazine, leaving art form, but it also bifurcated the art world. You saw a lot of people um, being extremely hostile to the ad, um, schools and universities canceling their ads, private individuals canceling their ads. But also people like um, the painter Elizabeth Murray, who was then a very young painter, writing a letter to the editor praising it as a sign of feminine strength. Very quickly, Miss Magazine, within one year, and New York Magazine, also within one year, were championing the ad among the other feminist 
pieces as being a new vanguard for the way that feminists can approach the art world and, and the production of their materials. Yeah, no, it's iconic. Yeah, no, the Morris ad sort of became an icon for gay masculinity, and the Bangladesh ad became this icon for, for feminist strength. It's really quite ironic. She wasn't just responding to Bob Morris, but also to the machismo of the period. So it was really a, you know, shot her ground the world in a sense. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think this is sometimes that we completely forget that how macho that period actually was. But also coming back to the nature of physical publications, the conversations about these things were being placed not on Twitter or Instagram, which obviously didn't exist back then, but the thoughtful letters to the editor or whole articles were being penned for periodicals that um, extended the ability for people to have legitimate and thoughtful dialogue about why these things existed or instigating ways that we could have conversations about them that um, were secondary, if not tertiary, to the actual act of the production of the material itself. Will this special, very iconic image be part of your booth, or will you show other things by Linda Bangles? With regards to Kusama, we are showing a series of stereoscopic slides that were photographed in Kusama's studio in 1969 when she was placing ads in Village Voice and other places where you could rent a camera or rent a model and photograph people, along with a, a series of articles about Kusama that appear in periodicals such as Ace, Bachelor, <laughs> Mr., Man-to-Man, or Boy, with articles like Kusama the Polka Dot Princess or... Uh, Kusama and Her Naked Happening, Kuki Kusama. So we have uh, all these tremendous color images of what these happenings performance look like, along with images that were taken in the Garden of the Museum of Modern Art in 1969, which he staged a, uh, a nude happening, unsanctioned nude happening in the fountains of the Museum of Modern Art. With regards to Bangladesh, we're going to be presenting, of course, the, the 1974 art form ad. But also, to finance that ad, Linda Bangles made unique T-shirts, art form T-shirts that were hand-painted individually unique. We have four of them. So you're going to see not only the art form ad, but how she subsidized the funding for that ad, along with some other material related to that. And you have those original shirts, which you can also sell at the Independent? I do. Wow. I, I do. I have We have four of them. And then Susan's going to be presenting Beverly, and, and Susan can explain that work. So Beverly, um, some years ago, when an upstate neighbor moved, he gifted her with a cache of vintage pornography that he had probably been collecting since he was 13. Okay. <laughs> How did he get this idea? <laughs> Sat at winter nights at the kitchen table upstate, looking at this pornography, wondering what she was supposed to do with it. And she began to intercede on the pages. And she wouldn't call it censoring, but using colored ink, she painted over the naughty bits. But in doing it, she's kind of making us look a little bit more closely. And as all great artists, Beverly raises the question, how do we feel about pornography? Are these women empowered? Are they violated? Should we be looking? What should we be looking at? And she never answers the question, but she asks it in a very beautiful, lyrical way. And so these images are almost abstractions. But again, we find ourselves looking a little bit more too closely for the naughty bits. But it's been the subject of a number of exhibitions. And one of my favorite iterations was at Grinnell College, 
where the curator held a panel discussion about pornography, which apparently got quite heated. And I see it's being repeated recently. They're going to do another conversation surrounding Beverly's FRPs many years later. So it continues to ask the question, and we still don't have the answer. You will be at the booth in Independent, so people can talk to you, but will you provide like more context? Will you answer all these questions? Because I can imagine... I'm not really sure of the art crowd because they might, might just, you know, they might just be open to that. But if other people, for example, find their way in and see that material, I think they might probably need a little help with it. Absolutely. That's the great part, isn't it? Is having mm -hmm. these conversations. That's why we do this is not to sit behind our computer all day long, uh, <laughs> shuffling paperwork. It's to have these conversations. That's why we have galleries that are open to the public. And, you know, David, some years ago, did a show that centered around Screw Magazine and all the interventions. And it was absolutely the most fun show because people came in and, and told me their stories about, you know, remembering Screw Magazine sitting on their parents' coffee table back in the 70s. That's what art does is it reaches a larger audience at best. It's not just for the elite. And that's why we have museums. Absolutely. I really wish for that. You know, because I think a lot of people that, as David said, were coming of age in the 60s or 70s, you know, they might have seen sitting all those magazines in their parents, on their tables or whatever. But when a very young generation comes in, they might have a completely different approach. How will you talk to them? It's answering the question and, and it's up to you to answer the question for yourself. I'm just asking it. Beverly's just asking it. She doesn't have an answer either. But that's what great art does is ask the questions. If a piece of art gives us the answer, then frankly, I think we've got a piece of wallpaper. It's not as interesting. It's not going to continue to challenge us. It's not going to continue to grow with us as we grow. That's really true. The pornography images Beverly used, so when he was collecting them since he was 13, <laughs> so that guessing. was also a little bit, <laughs> it was also a little bit more like ancient pornography. It was Playboy and Flint House magazine. Yeah. So there was, there was an art to it. It wasn't uh, the stuff you see on the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was what David just said, a little bit more tame. Yes, exactly. For, for our contemporary eyes. Thinking of the independent and your very special presentation there, what would be your wish? What happens there? What are you looking forward also I think Susan just said it. We're hoping to have good conversations with people. We tend to think all too frequently of art as simply that material that fills spaces. You know, we, Susan and I, both love this idea that we can have engagement with people. We're interested in telling stories, and that's the most fun. What both of us do is that you know we're engaged with artists that we find fascinating, and we really have uh, take a lot of pleasure in having the ability to speak with a certain level of authority about the material that we're presenting because it, it's so interesting and so engaging. And as Susan said, it shifts perspective. It certainly has shifted my perspective as I've spent time trying to get a handle on why this material came to be. I think that it was stuff that you know most people wanted to, to push into the back corner or, or throw away. And I think that it's really interesting to resurface it, particularly when we're having conversations about the careers of artists. Mm -hmm. Do you think that material has the same revolutionary potential now than it had back then? I think that if people look at it legitimately, absolutely. 
a lot of the art world has become so sanitized. And I think that it's really interesting to look back at this material, not through the filter of art history, and certainly not through the filter of multiple levels of criticism, but rather to strip away the layers of varnish that have been applied to the material and look at it the way that people were looking at it when the material was first being presented. You both have a weak spot also, but for things outside of the box, it seems. Are there any collaborations planned also for the future? David's doing my summer show. I don't know if he's ready to talk about it, but buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do a show about um, assisted artificial intelligence through the lens of action painting of the 1950s and 60s, 1940s, but with a very substantial twist, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that twist another day. I would like to know about that, because that is bringing two very unexpected things together from something very relevant from the past and something very relevant from now and the future. That's exactly it. Yep. Okay. Susan David, thank you so much for telling me all about that. Thank you. My pleasure. This has been fun. A good warm-up. This was a special Voices on Art episode created in collaboration with Independent Art Fair New York. Listen to it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice, on our website van-on.net and in the Independent OVR at independenthq.com. Follow Independent Art Fair on Instagram at independent underscore HQ and the podcast at Voices on Art and at van underscore horn underscore Düsseldorf. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art, the Fan Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect. <laughs>